Chapter Thirteen, Part Two of All in the Day's Work by Ida Tarbell. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. Off with the old, on with the new. All this was good for me, cushioned the shock I had suffered, convinced me that at least I had gotten my hands on something permanent, a fundamental factor in my future security, a home, a home capable of feeding me if the worst came to the worst but while it was good for me it was not so good for my work on the magazine i had believed i could work better in the quiet of the country but i was discovering that the country was more exciting than the town and the office as i knew it its attractions were proving too much for the difficult task which had been assigned me in the planning for the first year of the american the task was nothing less than to write a history of the making of our tariff schedules from the civil war on it had been a natural enough selection for me after the experience with the history of the standard oil company for the tariff was quite as much a matter of popular concern at the moment as the trust had been in nineteen hundred there was a growing demand for revision how could we get into the fight a subject must be found for me how about the tariff was a historical treatment possible i thought so at least i so despised the prohibitive tariff that i was willing to try if the magazine was willing to back me i suppose most of us have had at various periods of our life homemade remedies for the economic ills we see about us when i was a girl in high school i looked on an eight-hour day of productive labor for everybody as the way out i was much less worried by the hardships the long day brought working people than the mental and moral deterioration i imagined suffered by people who did not work idleness not labor was the scourge of the world for me the eight-hour day was a save the idle day before i left the chautauquan i had concluded that there was a trilogy of wrongs all curable responsible for our repeated depressions and our poorly distributed wealth discrimination in transportation tariffs save for revenue only private ownership of natural resources i was still of that opinion when largely by accident i had my chance to strike at number one in my trilogy could i by the method i had followed in that case and the only one i knew how to use present a plausible argument against number two what had particularly aroused me was the way tariff schedules were made the strength of what we now call pressure groups the powerful lobbies in wool and cotton and iron and sugar which for twenty-five years i had watched mowing congress down like a high wind there was no concealment of the pressure the lobbyists went at it hammer and tongs and battered down opposition with threats bribes and unparalleled arrogance by these tactics they had overcome mr cleveland's famous tariff message of eighteen eighty six had passed the outrageous mckinley bill of eighteen ninety had ruined the wilson bill of eighteen ninety three had defeated the promise of mckinley and dingley and aldrich to lower duties in eighteen ninety six and had substituted the highest and most distorted schedules the country had yet seen but it looked in nineteen o six as if the day of judgment was near and i asked nothing better than to be on the jury i went into it blindly on faith certainly not on knowledge and i had a handicap that i was far from realizing at the time 
that was that while in the case of the standard oil i had spent my life close to the events the tariff and its makers had never touched my life this was something i had read in a book another handicap was that my indignation was directed towards legal acts congress had adopted these schedules under coercion if you please but still it had adopted them the beneficiaries had the sanction of law it was a different case from challenging railroad discriminations which were forbidden by law as i worked on the congressional record and related documents i looked up men still living who had had a part in the struggle on one side or the other there were many of them scattered around the country now out of congress for the most part but not averse to talking as a rule i got little from them the fight which seemed to me so important was a dead issue to them they had lost or won it was all part of a game fresh from reading the daily discussions in the record curious about this or that man or argument i found them hazy often not particularly interested there was little of the righteous indignation which i thought i found in their recorded speeches had that been political instead of righteous indignation i began to think so it was grover cleveland who put heart in me he had lost none of his righteous indignation over the aid prohibitive tariffs were giving certain trusts none of his alarm over the growing disparity between industry and agriculture they were fostering he felt deeply the wrong of the prices they were inflicting on the farmer the professional class the poor i got nothing but encouragement from him for the review i had planned luckily i already had a pleasant working relation with mr cleveland it had come about in my last two years on mcclure's when my chief editorial task had been trying to persuade him that it was his duty to write his reminiscences for us incidentally offering myself as a ghost if he felt that he needed one as his letters to me at this time show he was not entirely unfriendly to the project i want to do the thing and yet i am afraid the difficulties in the way of doing it are fundamental and inexorable you see the project requires me to exploit myself and my doings before the public i do not see how i can do this though i am terribly vain and often bore my friends privately by tiresome reminiscence and yet i cannot but think that there are incidents and results in my career which by their narration might be of service in stimulating those who aspire to good citizenship and there we are this latter consideration hints of duty but then comes the fear that what seems to me duty is a mere fantastic notion and thereupon the old disinclination resumes its sway i have frequently thought no one could help me so much as you and it has seemed to me more than once that you and i might possibly cook up something in a summer vacation's freedom from distractions nothing came at this time nineteen o four of the tarbell cleveland fantasy as mr cleveland gaily dubbed it and two years later the project was dismissed but in a letter so friendly that i cannot resist quoting from it i do not believe a man who has turned the corner of sixty-nine years is any less vain and self-satisfied than when he was a youth at any rate here i am in this sixty-nine predicament delighted with the generous things you say of me in the goodness of your heart 
and more than halfway deluding myself into the notion that i deserve them i want to be very sensible and hard-headed in this affair but in any event i am entitled to rejoice in your good opinion of me and your hearty wishes for my welfare and happiness i thank you from the bottom of my heart for them and i shall gratefully remember them as long as i live somehow i have an idea that you know me well and surely i need not afflict myself with the fear of vanity if i have found a friend in you with those letters in my files i felt free when i undertook the tariff work for the american to ask mr cleveland to talk to me about the making of his tariff message in eighteen eighty six and the failure of the wilson bill in eighteen ninety three he was most generous and when i had completed my story of the two episodes i asked him to read the manuscript and give me a candid judgment and of course his corrections and his suggestions the chief suggestion that he made shows a sensitiveness to his literary style in public documents which i had not suspected charming letter-writer as mr cleveland was in his public documents he was ponderous i must have enlarged a little on this for i find this paragraph in his letter with which he sent back the proofs i have ventured to suggest a little toning down of your characterization of my style thinking perhaps you would be willing to make an alteration to please me if for no other reason you know we are all a little sensitive on such a point there was another paragraph in that letter which touched me deeply your article has caused me to feel again the greatest sorrow and disappointment i have ever suffered in my public career the failure of my party to discharge its most important duty and its fatuous departure from its appointed mission but lean as heavily as i dared on mr cleveland work as i would and did on the tariff debates of congress i can wish my worst enemy no greater punishment than reading them in full i could not put vitality into my narrative it was of the congressional record it was second-hand it was the making of the payne aldrich bill in nineteen o nine that finally gave a certain life to my narrative here was something belonging to the present not something of the past by all the signs theodore roosevelt should have been the st george to lead in the revision the public was calling so loudly for particularly after the panic of nineteen o seven few of his party leaders paid attention are not all our fellows happy speaker joseph cannon asked as the demand for revision became louder roosevelt himself heard it but frankly said to his intimates that he did not know anything about the tariff he did not and he would not take the time to learn he hammered at the effects of privilege pursued malefactors of great wealth but was not willing to do the hard studying of the causes which produced the malefactors mr taft who followed roosevelt had no choice the platform on which he was elected called unequivocally for tariff reform and as soon as he was inaugurated he called a special session to do the work my chagrin was great when i realized at once that all the ancient technique i had been trying to discredit was repeating itself it is i told myself the same old circus the same old gilded chariots the same old clowns so far as arguments were concerned they might have been taken from the hearings of eighty three of eighty eight of ninety three of ninety six 
figures were changed and nobody could deny that these figures of growth were impressive but they came from interested men they are incapable of judging mr carnegie told the committee no judge should be permitted to sit in a cause in which he is interested you make the greatest mistake in your life if you attach importance to an interested witness the process which sunset cox back in the seventies characterized as reciprocal rapine buying votes for the schedule their constituents wanted by voting for schedules they could not justify was in full swing never was the tariff as the cause of prosperity worked harder it was the answer of the prohibitive protectionist to the charge that the tariff was a tax in all the early years they had called it so a tax to produce revenue encourage new industries protect higher wages a better standard of living but mr cleveland had called it boldly a vicious inequitable illogical tax and illustrated his adjectives tellingly the effect of his attack was so disastrous that the supporters of prohibitive duties went into a huddle to find a new name the cause of prosperity was the euphemism they produced a repeater that had figured in every tariff bill was the answer of the priests of the dogma to the argument that the poor should be considered according to the pictures they drew there were no poor in the united states this refusal to recognize poverty was no more discouraging in the making of the bill of nineteen o nine than the indifference to the effect high tariffs were having on the cost of the necessities of life in this they ran true to historical precedent from the time the business man took charge in the late seventies any attempt to call the attention at hearings to what a duty would do to the price of a necessity of life was ignored or jeered justice brandeis then plain lawyer brandeis was before a committee considering the dingley bill and for whom do you appear he was asked for the consumer he answered the committee chairman and all laughed aloud but they were good enough to say oh let him run down this old indifference to the effects of higher prices on the living of the poor stirred me to the only article in my series which seemed to take hold i called it where every penny counts the worthwhile thing from my point of view was that it reached women i never knew what the tariff meant before jane adams wrote me here was something which touched those in whom she was interested wage earners she knew from actual contact what the increase of a cent in the price of a quart of milk a spool of thread a pound of meat meant to working girls with their six or eight dollars a week she knew that every penny added to the cost of their food clothes or coal gave less warmth less covering it was not difficult to show that what they were trying to do in washington in the making of the payne aldrich bill was just that a tariff that would add to the cost of things that must be had if people were to live at all to my deep satisfaction this effort to make the new tariff bill in the good old way was promptly met by a rousing challenge from a group of progressive republican senators men who had been largely responsible for forcing the promise to reform into the party platform when they discovered that there would be no reform if the lobbyists and their friends in congress could prevent it 
they crystallized into one of the most vigorous and intelligent fighting bands that had been seen for many years in congress insurgents they were called the leader in the revolt interested in railroad reform rather than the tariff was la follette of wisconsin others were beveridge of indiana cummins and dolliver of iowa bora of idaho and bristow of kansas they were already familiar figures at the american along with certain members of the house particularly the salty and peppery william kent of california phillips baker and steffens being in frequent communication with them the most brilliant and witty as well as the most thoroughly informed of the tariff insurgents was the amiable senator dolliver from iowa twenty years in congress always regular always stoutly supporting the tariff bills turned out by the committee what ails you now i asked him well he said i had been going on for twenty years taking practically without question what they handed me but these alliances between the party and industrial interests have at last set me thinking i began to understand something of the injustice that was being done to the consumer and then we promised to reform the tariff when the insurgents divided up the schedules for study schedule k wool the most difficult and the most important politically fell to senator dolliver he found he had been voting for years for duties which when he sat down to read the schedule he could not understand he discovered they were a mixture of tricks evasions and discriminations intended to be so he believed he determined to master them and master them he did by months of the severest night work he pored over statistics and technical treatises he visited mills and importing houses and retail shops he sought the aid of experts and in the end he knew his subject so well that he went onto the floor of the senate without a manuscript and literally played with schedule k and incidentally also with senator aldrich who was said to fly to the cloak-room whenever senator dolliver rose to speak when he had finished his clean competent dissection schedule k lay before the senate a law without principles or morals and yet just as it was the senate of the united states passed it and the president of the united states signed it and it went on the statute books why neither mr taft nor mr aldrich defended the wool schedule which made the bill odious they both were frank in explaining that it was politically necessary not at all a question of the fairness of the schedule but a question of what powerful interests demanded the wool interests could defeat the bill if they did not get what they wanted my conviction about the inequity of schedule k was so strong that when the outlook published a long defence of it plainly an advertisement but not so marked i protested in a personal letter to its vociferous contributing editor theodore roosevelt with whom by this time i was on fairly friendly terms just what i said in my letter about the herald which so stirred his wrath i do not remember but his answer to my comment is so typically rooseveltian in temper and reasoning that i think it should be preserved may sixth nineteen eleven oh miss tarbell miss tarbell how can you take the view you do of the herald you compare it with the tribune 
it is perfectly legitimate to compare the tribune with mr watterson's paper the courier journal honest people could agree or disagree about those two papers personally i think that during the last thirty or forty years the tribune has been infinitely more helpful to good causes than the courier journal but as i say people can differ on such a subject and i should be very glad to meet at any time either henry waterston or whitelaw reed but to compare either one of them with the herald is literally and precisely as if i should compare either the american magazine or the outlook with town topics having expressed his opinion of the herald he proceeded to an elaborate specious explanation of the matter which had so stirred my ire that i had protested to him now as for what you say about the outlook's publishing the truth about k in the first place i admit at once that the title the type and the placing of this advertisement did make it look to many readers like an editorial article we used the same title type and placing that had been used for similar articles for twenty years but our attention was subsequently called to the fact to which you now call my attention i e that some people were misled in the matter and in consequence we at once abandoned this twenty years custom from now on every article of the kind will appear under the heading of advertising department or advertising section so that there cannot be any possible mistake in the future as for the publication of the article itself i most emphatically think that it was not only justifiable but commendable the outlook publishes continually letters from people upholding policies or view with which the outlook diametrically disagrees for example the outlook has on several different occasions published letters taking a very dark view of my own character and achievements whether at san juan hill or elsewhere this particular article by spencer i should have been glad to see published in the regular section of the outlook as putting forth his side of the case just as i am now trying to secure publication in the outlook of an article from the northwestern farmers giving their side of the case against canadian reciprocity spencer's article however was too long and such being the case as i say i was not merely willing but glad to see it put in i did not know it had been put in of course until long after it had appeared but when i did see it i was glad that it had been put in probably you know that on april eighth the outlook editorially took up this question stated that the american woolen company was entirely justified in printing their article as an advertisement and that the outlook violated in no degree the ethics of journalism in admitting the advertisement to its pages and expressed its total disagreement with the views expressed in the article i would have gone further than this i would have stated that the outlook did not violate the ethics of journalism but rendered a great and needed service as an example in showing its willingness to accept the statement of a case with which it did not agree to put it in exactly as it was written and then itself to comment with absolute freedom as it has done upon the arguments made in the advertisement let me repeat that if the outlook had had space which it unfortunately did not have i should have been glad to see spencer's article inserted not as an advertisement but as a communication signed by spencer and avowedly stating his side of the case sincerely yours theodore roosevelt 
i felt i had won my case with mr roosevelt's assurance that henceforth every article of the kind would appear under the head of advertising department when the payne aldrich bill was finally passed with mr taft's and mr aldrich's brutally frank explanations i was done with the tariff as a subject for further study and writing four years later came the democratic effort to make a revision i had only the most casual interest it was the same old method they might make a better bill i told myself but there could never be a fair one as long as tariffs were set by a congress under the thumb of people personally interested one thing seemed clear to me which is still clearer now the combined prohibitive tariff industries were digging their own grave foreign markets they had to have but they refused to buy from those to whom they wanted to sell what the gentlemen did not realize was that by this procedure they were practically forcing nations not naturally industrial to copy their methods industrialize themselves these nations soon were succeeding with such skill that in spite of the boosting of the tariff again and again the foreigners continued to undersell us but the prohibitive protectionists were building a future competitor threatening to be stronger than foreign trade this in the realm of politics there had been no more hardy and conscienceless supporters of prohibitive tariffs than certain groups of organized labor conspicuously the amalgamated steel and iron workers under john jarrett they were not a numerous body but with the cry of the full dinner pail they were able to back the demands of the employers they had a body of votes that no political party dared defy but in teaching organized labor the power of political pressure the industrialists gave them a weapon that they did not see might one day be turned against themselves back in the eighties one of the wisest and soundest economists we have produced david a wells said in substance of the victory of the tariff lobbies this is a revolution it will take another revolution to overthrow the leadership now established by businessmen i felt after the bill of nineteen o nine that there was nothing for an outsider like me to do but wait for that revolution i felt this so deeply that when president wilson invited me to be a member of the tariff commission he formed in december nineteen sixteen i refused i was pleased of course that mr wilson thought me fit for such a place i knew that i should find the associations interesting the dean of tariff students in the united states dr tossig of harvard was the chairman to be under him would be an education that would be worth the taking but i did not hesitate first there was my personal situation my obligations i had no right to give up my profession for a connection of that sort in its nature temporary then i realized my own unfitness as mr wilson could not i had had no experience in the kind of work this required i was an observer and reporter not a negotiator i am not a good fighter in a group i forget my duty in watching the contestants but primarily there was my hopelessness about the service the tariff commission might render its researches and its conclusions however sound would stand no chance in congress when a wool or iron or steel or sugar lobby appeared a tariff commission was hamstrung from the start 
of course it was not only my interest in work on the tariff that had led mr wilson to offer me the position he was looking about for women to whom he could give recognition he was an outspoken advocate of suffrage and wanted to use women when he thought them qualified jane adams pleaded with me to accept for the sake of women but i did not feel that women were served merely by an appointment to office women like men serve in proportion to their fitness for office to the actual fact that they have something to contribute i had no enthusiasm for the task did not even respect it greatly i believed too that harm is done all around by undertaking technical jobs without proper scientific training the cause of women is not to be advanced by putting them into positions for which they are untrained the press comments on the idea of a woman on this commission were not unfriendly as far as i saw them but they were a little surprised and as i was to find later protests were made to mr wilson my friend ray stannard baker working on the wilson papers came across an answer of the president on december twenty seventh nineteen sixteen to one protesting gentleman which i am not too modest to print as a matter of fact she has written more good sense good plain common sense about the tariff than any man i know of and is a student of industrial conditions in this country of the most serious and sensible sort End of chapter 13, part 2.